and welcome to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series covering the June 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue six. First up, Kieran Perkins talks about the article, Investigation of Healthcare Infection Risks from Water-Related Organisms, Summary of CDC Consultations, 2014 through 2017. Then Doyle Ward and Richard Ellison discuss their article, Integration of Genomic and Clinical Data Augments Surveillance of Healthcare-Acquired Infections. And lastly, Dr. Sari E. talks about her research comparing surgical site infection risk following cesarean deliveries covered by Medicaid versus private insurance. After listening, please be sure to go to the June issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Now let's get started. Our first guest is Dr. Kieran Perkins. Dr. Perkins is a medical officer in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at CDC and first author of the article, Investigation of Healthcare Infection Risks from Water-Related Organisms, Summary of CDC Consultations, 2014 through 2017. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Perkins. Why don't you start by telling us about the background for your study and also what you and your colleagues found? Sure, I would be happy to, Lindsay. So we know that water exposures in healthcare settings can potentially place patients at risk for infections with organisms often found in water. So my colleagues and I wanted to take a closer look at the outbreaks and infection control breaches that our division hears about from healthcare facilities and public health departments regarding these water-related infections in healthcare. And we did this because we felt it would give us a glimpse into the types of issues that healthcare facilities and patients are facing every day when it comes to water-related infection risks. Many of you may already know, but the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at CDC provides consultative assistance to health departments and healthcare facilities related to healthcare-associated outbreaks, and we also provide guidance for identified infection control lapses. So we decided to review all these consultations over a four-year time period, namely from 2014 through 2017, to see how many of those consultations involved water-related organisms, like Pseudomonas or non-tuberculous mycobacteria, for example, and to look at these consultations that where the primary mode of transmission would be through water exposures. And what's surprising is we found that more than one out of every five of our consultations was water-related. Now, of course, the requests for assistance that we receive likely represent a very small fraction of the outbreaks and infection control breaches that are actually going on in U.S. healthcare facilities, but I think nonetheless, this number really gives us a a glimpse into the burden that these water-related infections pose in healthcare to our patients. When we looked at the types of organisms that are involved in these investigations, we found over 20 different organisms. But by and large, the most common organism was non-tuberculous mycobacteria, or NTM, which many of you may have heard of. In fact, NTM were involved in almost a third of the investigations, and they accounted for close to 40% of the patients affected in this review. A close second to NTM was Pseudomonas species, and Pseudomonas actually accounted for almost 20% of our investigations. We also found that surgical exposures 
medical devices and medications are a common theme among many of these investigations. And I think this all suggests that water contamination during surgery or with the use of medical devices and medica medications can play a very important role in transmitting these water-related organisms to our patients. We also found other exposure pathways as possible routes of transmission, and those activities include things like doing medication and injection preparation near sinks, introducing water during respiratory therapy, and the use of contaminated water in dental water lines, which has actually been linked to a number of large outbreaks that we've seen across the country over the last few years. So what would you say are the key takeaways from your study that you feel are especially relevant to the itchy readers? Well, I think itchy readers will likely find the results and the implication of the study very, very relevant. And that's because most of us are either work, work in healthcare or most of us have been a patient ourselves um, and have had healthcare uh, delivered to us in some uh, shape or form. And the fact that water-related outbreak investigations represent over 20% of the outbreak consultations that we do here at CDC has um, really highlighted the need for healthcare facilities to ensure that their water is safe and to think about how to prevent patient exposure to contaminated water during the course of clinical care. Now, patients have the potential to be exposed to water throughout um, the course of their care. As I mentioned, um, some transmission pathways of water-related organisms that we found during patient care include um, pre preparing medications and injections near sinks, um, reprocessing reusable medical equipment, using non-sterile water sources, using manufactured medications that may have been contaminated with water, and the list goes on. So I think given this information, clinicians and healthcare facilities really need to consider all the potential pathways in which patients may be exposed to contaminated water during the course of care when faced with infections of these water-related organisms. As such, I think facilities really need to recognize these patient risks associated with exposure to these organisms. And I think to go above and beyond, they need to take measures to devise and implement a water management program that's really effective in limiting these organisms from growing and spreading in their facility and ultimately from reaching their patients. I think healthcare facilities should also monitor and identify evidence of patient harm involving water-related organisms. And when they do find those, be very ready to investigate those harms and implement um, effective interventions. Great, thank you. And my last question is, did your findings or the limitations of your study raise any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated or that you and your colleagues plan to investigate? So as I mentioned, our review may not represent the full spectrum of water-related healthcare-associated investigations because we only included investigations in which our division provided consultation and assistance. So I think they likely represent the more complex outbreaks and scenarios than what most facilities and health departments are dealing with on a daily basis. So I think that this is a limitation of the study. Another limitation is that we just have very high level and general information about the consultations and that we conducted with health departments and healthcare facilities on the outbreaks that they're dealing with. So we don't have a lot of granular detail on what exactly the cause of each of these outbreaks uh, is. I think it's important to continue 
for us to try to understand what the burden of water-related healthcare-associated infections is. Um, and we also think it's important to provide support and guidance for healthcare facilities that are dealing with this issue. So in this vein, CDC continues to work to develop guidance and tools for healthcare facilities to help prevent these infection risks to patients. I'll add that although our current focus is on creating tools and guidance for healthcare facilities, these outbreaks do point to areas that need more research. We just need more data to help guide us in creating these um, tools and guidance. Research on how to deal with contaminated sink drains, evaluating the impact of water-related interventions like waterless ICUs, for example, and research on best practices around water management programs to reduce infections will likely all take additional research. And this type of research is not only gonna help us prevent outbreaks, but will hopefully also prevent sporadic infections due to water-related transmission in the future. So again, I think although our focus currently is to help develop guidance and tools for healthcare facilities to deal with this issue, we have also identified areas for further research and to help um, guide us in making these tools available. Thank you, Dr. Perkins. And thank you for joining me today on the Itchy Podcast. With me now are Dr. Doyle Ward and Dr. Richard Ellison. Could you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure, I'll go first. This is Doyle Ward. Um, I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Um, I am also uh, one of the directors of the Center for Microbiome Research, where we um, focus on genomics of, of bacteria and bacteria communities. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Dr. Dick Ellison. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and I do clinical infectious disease, and I'm the hospital epidemiologist for UMass Memorial Medical Center. Great. Thanks for joining us today. Dr. Ward and Dr. Ellison are two of the authors on the article, Integration of Genomic and Clinical Data, Augment Surveillance of Healthcare Acquired Infections. To begin, will you share with our listeners a little bit of the background for your study? Uh, sure. So um, this study was a partnership, a research collaboration with Phillips Healthcare, uh, the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and the Center for Microbiome Research. The goal was to determine if genomic sequencing of bacterial infections could be applied to identify transmission events in the hospital setting. And what we decided to do is really take a, a large-scale um, prospective collection of uh, essentially all uh, bacterial infectious isolates from patients uh, admitted to our hospital and, and from the emergency department visits. From the collection of all these isolates, we then performed genomic sequencing on all of those isolates. And the goal was to examine the differences in those genomes to determine um, if we could identify transmission events by that genomic information. And then working with um, you know, clinical teams and uh, Philips Healthcare, organizing all the data in a way that we could um, transmit it to um, infection control practitioners, such as Dr. Ellison, and uh, see if we could identify you know, how, how to respond to this genomic information. And so what exactly did you and your colleagues do in this study, and what did you find? 
uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Dick Ellison. Just, uh, we actually focused um, on four species in particular, looking at Enterococcus faecium, Staphylococcus aureus, uh, Clebsiella pneumoniae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And one of the first uh, critical questions that we felt needed to be addressed was defining what would be considered a cross-transmission event. Our assumption was that cross-transmission events which are taking place in the hospital or healthcare environment would be very recent events, and we needed to define what would be the degree of variation in the genomic sequence of the uh, different bacterial isolates. We used it on the basis of single nucleotide variations or SNVs to define this, and our first question was how are, how many SNV differences uh, would mean that strains were unrelated. Uh, to do this, we then tried to do an analysis of the amount of variation in SNVs in isolates obtained from individual patients to look at the variation that could be seen within one patient and then use that to try and define uh, thresholds to define strains which might be related between two different patients. And what did you find? So one of the challenges is understanding um, how similar two bacteria need to be in order to suspect that there's a, a recent transmission event. Um, when you look at the genomes of, of two different isolates of a bacteria, you can simply count the number of SNV differences between those two, two genomes. And if you get a number that's you know, upwards of 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 differences, over the um, roughly 2.8 million potential bases in Staph aureus, you can be confident that they're not related. But when you start getting counts that are on the order of 10 or 15 or eight, it's a little harder to determine whether or not that indicates a recent transmission or not. We tried to determine um, a threshold um, for determining whether um, isolates are related by transmission by comparing the number of SNP differences that were found when we took isolates from a single patient over time, those isolates will vary by a small number of SNPs. And comparing those numbers to the numbers that we typically see between isolates from unrelated patients. And there, those numbers can range anywhere from 20 to 1,000 to 10,000. And so by doing this comparison, we were able to identify some reasonable thresholds for determining um, whether isolates may be related by a recent transmission. And we did this for each of the four species we studied, Staph aureus, Enterococcus faecium, Pseudomonas, and Klebsiella. And each organism has you know, essentially a, a different level of natural variation. And so the thresholds for each of these organisms were different. Um, when we looked at the large data set that we generated of differences between isolate pairs and applied these thresholds, we were then able to cluster related isolates together. And then these clusters um, potentially represent a, a recent transmission chain between people um, in the care setting or, or possibly in the community. So what would you say are some of the key takeaways from your study that are especially relevant to the itchy readers? I think one of the key things that we found 
were was that the genomics was able to identify potential transmissions that were not apparent um, in the in the current clinical care practice and uh, definitely couldn't have been identified by a lot of the information that is currently available in the in the clinical care setting. If I can just uh, add in some points. So uh, additionally, a key uh, point was uh, we had 823 patients uh, involved in the study set, and uh, we found clusters, we found 34 clusters, which involved 96 patients, so that meant that most of the isolates, uh, most of the patients' isolates were unique and probably their own strain as opposed to cross-transmission events. And we also, when we looked at the these clusters, uh, we uh, were actually only able to develop, to find really obvious clinical correlations between about nine of the 28, so that there was cross-transmission events appearing to occur by uh, aspects that we were not, uh, hadn't been able to readily identify. These included you know, one cluster that had six patients that uh, with isolates obtained over about a seven-month time period. Uh, patients uh, were never on the same floor, never in the hospital at the same time. So we would not have picked this up, recognized this as a cluster at all by any of our usual uh, ID surveillance. And in fact, of the 34 clusters that were identified, we only were had been aware of one of these prior to uh, getting the genomic analysis. So the other 33 were ones we were not aware of at all. I will say that some of them were obviously involved patients in the community, so that we, you know, the fact that several of the patients were injection drug users who shared the same strain as Staph aureus. And in this situation, if someone did not look at things carefully, they, they you know, these isolates could have been identified considered as being hospital cross-transmission events if we did not look carefully and see that they were from the community setting. And so did your study or its limitations raise any future research questions you'd like to see investigated? As a researcher, I think it raises yeah. all sorts of interesting questions to to, to pursue. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of this type of work from a genomics perspective is, is driven by trying to identify thresholds um, that distinguish um, related strains. And, and that that process is still um, a challenge to um, be consistent and, and resolve. So I think um, one, on, you know, on the just the, the data side, it, it's still a challenge to put things on one side of the line or the other, whether the transmission or, or rule them out. Uh, another uh, challenge that I think um, is, I find quite interesting is how, how do we use this data and how um, do we bring you know a new data type, which would be genomics information, in, into clinical care practice? There are you know different schools of thought, different schools of training, and I think um, integrating you know the results and communicating um, clearly between um, lab and, and clinician is, is is a challenge and, and something that over time we'll get better at. And Dr. Ellison, is there anything you'd like to add? Yes, yes. Because we were doing a study which both defined the thresholds for what represented a cluster, we really were not able to do our cluster analysis in a real-time basis. 
and also related to some technical issues we had. It does look like going forward as the technology advances, there's going to be able to be able to get real-time analysis or you know information within a one or two weeks after an isolate is obtained to potentially get sequencing data available and looking at clinical correlates. And that would allow for much more in-depth analysis of the true clusters to look at what are the routes of cross-transmission uh, so we could then try and prevent them. Uh, a second issue uh, related that we also didn't really have a chance to look at that would be uh, how you know, many false clusters uh, are taking place in the hospital environment. By that, I mean how many times might we have three or four patients in an ICU at this, you know, same, approximately the same time with staph aureus isolates and being able to say they're all four unrelated would be of obvious benefit to the hospital and could actually help to find the cost benefits of going to using genomic sequencing. And then we also begin, also want to get, uh, as a, in the future, better understanding of what is the uh, uh, actual you know, precise thresholds we should use for defining clusters uh, and what is, what is and what is not a cluster. We had a very uh, interesting situation. We had two patients who, on an infectious control perspective in our surveillance, appeared to have a likely cross-transmission. The two patients were the same room for approximately 10 days. Both of them had enterococcus fecium. Uh, and they were related in terms of having 11 SNF differences where we had made an arbitrary decision to use 10 SNF differences as our threshold for a cluster. Uh, and even more interesting in these uh, this regard was these two patients. One of them had a vancomycin-susceptible enterococcus, and the other one had a vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, where we were able to show that the vanade gene was present on a plasmid. So this was a cross-transmission event that we potentially would have been better defined if we had a better understanding of our thresholds, and also a cross-transmission event, which never would be picked up by routine hospital surveillance uh, if an institution is only looking at BRE isolates and not uh, all enterococcus fecium isolates. Great. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? So, yeah, one of the challenges that I think is um, often overlooked is, is just the one of data integration. And I really want to give a shout out to the many co-authors on this paper that represent that arm of the, of the study. You know, there's a lot of complicated clinical data um, in a hospital, you know, down to even the beds and the rooms they occupy and the times that are important for infectious disease surveillance, the microbiology data that comes from the diagnostics labs. And then what we're adding onto this is, is complicated genomic data. And so um, many of the co-authors on the Philips team um, did a tremendous amount of work um, building informatics platforms for analysis and presentation and integration of this data, as well as the, um, the clinical and, and school IT people uh, at UMass for database management and data integration. And so I, that's, that's a, a real challenge that um, I think, you know, so perfect solutions are still wanting, but, um, you know, making good progress toward. Thank you, Dr. Ellison and Dr. Ward for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Oh, yeah, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Our last guest today is Dr. Sarah E. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. E. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you for the invitation to discuss this work. My name is Sarah E. and I'm a health scientist in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Great. Well, thanks for taking some time to speak with us today. Uh, Dr. E is the first author of the article, Surgical Site Infection Risk Following Cesarean Deliveries Covered by Medicaid or Private Insurance. And as the title suggests, the aim of this study was to compare risk of surgical site infection following cesarean delivery between women covered by Medicaid and private health insurance. So Dr. E, tell us a little bit about your study and what you found. We conducted a study to investigate whether risk of surgical site infections, or SSIs, following cesarean deliveries differed by insurance payer among women covered by Medicaid or private insurance. We used two main data sources for this study. The first was a surveillance data source from the National Healthcare Safety Network, or NHSN, to identify surgical site infections in the 30 days following cesarean delivery. The second was an inpatient discharge data source, largely from California, to identify the payer for the cesarean delivery. We linked these two data sources by hospital identifier, patient date of birth, and patient procedure dates. To assess the risk of SSI, we used a multivariable logistic model, which allowed us to adjust for other known patient, procedure, and facility risk factors such as age, procedure duration, and annual volume of procedures. Once we linked the two data sources and applied restriction criteria, we had a sample size of just under 300,000 cesarean deliveries performed in California hospitals. And what we found was that Medicaid was the primary payer for 48% of included cesarean deliveries and private payer for 52%. Of the 300,000 deliveries, 2010 resulted in SSI in the following 30 days. When we looked at the risk of SSI by payer, we found the risk of SSI was 40% higher among women covered by Medicaid than those covered by private insurance accounting for confounders. The majority of these SSIs were detected following discharge, either through post-discharge surveillance or hospital readmission. And why is this study of interest to the itchy readers? This study is important and of interest to the itchy community as it identifies a population at increased risk for SSI that needs to be addressed. Great strides are being made in healthcare epidemiology. Much work is being done to understand modes of transmission and bring innovation to the prevention of healthcare associated infections. There are also regional and national collaborative efforts among healthcare institutions to support efforts to prevent infections. However, identification of potential health disparities in the field of healthcare-associated infections remains a gap. Research is needed to identify, understand, and reduce potential disparities in healthcare-associated infections associated with insurance coverage, as well as other factors such as socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, and rural residents. For women covered by Medicaid specifically, these findings suggest the need to evaluate and better characterize the quality of maternal healthcare delivery and the needs of the women receiving care. This information is important to inform targeted infection prevention efforts by hospitals. 
And lastly, did your findings or the limitations of this study raise any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated? It would be informative to repeat this study in other states to corroborate the results. This would help to determine whether the disparities are related to Medicaid coverage in general or nuances in the state administration of the program. In addition, it would be good to understand if there are other factors that could account for these results. For example, if there are underlying medical conditions or relevant patient characteristics differently represented between the two groups that we could not account for, or if there are differences in patient care practices that are influenced by insurance coverage. Well, thank you, Dr. Yi, for joining us today to talk about your research, and listeners can read the full article in the June issue of Itchy. Thanks again. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to discuss this study, and we look forward to any feedback the Itchy readership may have. This concludes Episode 6 of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening.